Hello, welcome back to the National Association for Primary Education podcast. My name is Mark Taylor, I'm the Vice Chair of NAEP and thank you so much for joining us today. On the 8th of March we had our annual conference and Schiller lecture which this year of course was virtual but it was entitled Towards a Balanced and Broadly Based Curriculum. Now this really insightful lecture given by Dr Tony Hude is something which is really at the heart of what NAEP is all about in terms of having a child first, a child centred idea of education and what that looks like in the, the curriculum in our current times. So I hope you enjoy this. There's a brief introduction by our General Secretary Robert Young and then you'll hear the entire lecture which was recorded live during our event from Dr Tony Hude. This brings me really to Dr Tony Ewood because it's always been a tradition that we invite a distinguished figure to contribute the, the Schiller Lecture and we've always selected those who are not only articulate but also very enlightened in their approach to primary education and there is no better person really than Tony to deliver the Schiller Lecture because he has addressed so many different areas of education in his the books that he's written. He's written on children's spiritual, moral and social development, learning difficulties. He's written about values education. He's written about pedagogy in the primary and early years. So his uh, repertoire has been a very broad one. He is therefore in so many respects uh, an ideal person to not only kick off this, this conference, uh, but also to deliver the Schiller Lecture. Dr. Tony Ute. Right, thank you very much. It's a great privilege to give the Christian Schiller Lecture for a second time, and I'm grateful to Nate for enabling this. In 2018, my lecture was called Rehumanizing Primary Education, and I hope today to build on that theme. I start by saying a few words about Christian Schiller and considering some issues which the last year has highlighted. I'll then discuss what a balanced and broadly based curriculum looks like and why this matters, making four interlinked arguments why this is particularly so for young children and those from disadvantaged backgrounds. I emphasize the why because we too rarely explore or articulate why children benefit from some activities and experiences, notably those associated with the humanities and the arts, although many of us take this for granted. As a result, such areas of learning are often seen, including by many teachers, as frills, or in Robin Alexander's words, desirable but inessential. I end by summarizing these four main reasons but arguing that how teachers relate to and interact with children matters more than the written curriculum if children are to experience a more engaging, inclusive and humane education. Schiller was an inspector in Liverpool in the 1920s, a role rather different from that of inspectors now, more to advise than to evaluate. Schiller's concern at the desperate squalor and poverty which he witnessed in the slums of Liverpool his humanity and the narrow and inappropriate curriculum on offer come through very strongly in what he said and wrote. His main concern was for children's basic needs to be met in terms of being properly fed, clothed and cared for. But he also believed passionately that children in the elementary schools he saw should have a broader, richer and more suitable range of experiences with his emphasis being on physical activity and the arts. 
while Schiller, as Robert said, went on to work in other roles, supporting primary head teachers and teachers, this early experience was formative and remained with him for the next 50 years or so. The last year has affected us all in ways that are hard to understand. This is not the time to explore this in depth, but two lessons which have become even clearer than previously are the devastating impact of poverty on young children's lives and the importance of schools, not just as places where children learn, but where they feel safe and interact with other people. The pandemic has exposed all too starkly the extent to which children who are hungry, who lack space and opportunities to play, or who have experienced or witnessed domestic violence and many other types of difficulty are disproportionately those who live in poverty. I can recall my profound shock when I have visited the homes of children where the signs of poverty were all too evident. Those of us who have a place to live where we and our children are safe, properly nourished and warm, may find it hard to imagine how it is for those who are not. The last year has shown how children from disadvantaged backgrounds have had a far more limited range of opportunities than those from more privileged ones, which is not to say that the latter may not have faced considerable difficulties. But children who are privileged are far more likely because of their opportunities out of school to have a better balanced and more broadly based range of experiences than those who are less so, just as I benefited as a privileged child from plentiful opportunities, for instance, to visit historic monuments, to go to the theatre and to play a variety of sports. And Black Lives Matter has highlighted that the curriculum should reflect the diverse backgrounds and identities of children and families in contemporary societies. These considerations raise questions such as how to counter the impact of many forms of disadvantage, most prominently now in, rela in relation to race and ethnicity, but especially in relation to poverty. The restrictions on how teachers have been able to work in recent months have rightly caused many to rethink their role in pedagogy. The current situation, in my view, presents an opportunity to steer towards a broader, richer and more appropriate primary curriculum. We must think how children can be enabled to be and become less dependent on teachers and the extent to which online learning is appropriate for young children. More immediately, we need to think what a recovery curriculum should look like and focus on. I suggest that this must not just be a catch-up curriculum both recovery curriculum and catch-up are in, uh, in apostrophes. This must not be just a catch-up curriculum, which entails more of the same. And that all children, whatever their background, require a better balanced and broadly based, more engaging and enjoyable range of experiences and opportunities to represent these in a variety of ways. State-funded schools are required by law in England and Wales to offer a curriculum which is balanced and broadly based with similar wording in Northern Ireland and Scotland. Let's think what this means, recognizing that as Colin Richards argues, ideas like balanced and broadly based are open to interpretation and will always be a matter of debate. Broadly based seems to me the easier idea. A table with four legs is more stable than one with only three. Most four or five year olds soon discover 
that a tower with a narrow base is likely to fall over. There is inevitably a trade-off between depth and breadth, but while individual children may wish to dig deeper into what interests them, most groups benefit from a broad, though not a superficial approach, in ways that I shall come back to. In considering balance, one must ask balance between what? All our futures, the Robinson report, offers a good starting point, arguing for balance, firstly, between different fields of study and disciplines, secondly, within all disciplines between tradition and innovation, and thirdly, in the teaching of different values and traditions, reflecting and responding to cultural diversity. The first, emphasizes the need for a balance between the arts, the humanities, and the sciences and mathematics. The second highlights that while children will always be expected to learn, and in some cases memorize some types of knowledge, they must also exercise their imagination and create their own ideas and new ways of working. The third is particularly vital in a society with much greater diversity of language, belief and culture than when I was a boy. A fourth type of balance suggested to me by an ex-colleague, thanks Sarah, is that which comes over time by working with different teachers and teaching styles, because inevitably all teachers have varying personalities and quirks, strengths and weaknesses. Turning to why a balanced and broadly based curriculum matters, one could just say this is a legal requirement, as it is in all jurisdictions of the UK, or that in England, Ofsted, the inspectorate, expects this, as it does at least in key stages two and three, on the basis that a narrow curriculum has a disproportionately negative effect on the most disadvantaged pupils. While this is welcome, they regard this as mattering less in key stage one, where a focus on literacy, especially reading and writing, and numeracy, is encouraged to enable children to access a balanced and broadly based curriculum in key stage two. I shall argue against this view. These two reasons are cogent, but they seem to me less so than those based on how children learn and the types of people and society we hope to create, and so to social justice, inclusion, and entitlement. In my recent book, Identity, Culture and Belonging, Educating Young Children for a Changing World, I argued that we are all constantly changing and in the process of becoming, young children especially so, as they struggle to make sense of themselves and the world around them. Identities are multiple and fluid and often conflicting, and the process of constructing, weaving and negotiating identities is neither linear nor even. Many intersecting factors affect how children's identities are shaped. Perhaps the most obvious is gender, and Black Lives Matters has highlighted the prevalence and significance of racism. Factors such as religion, language, and disability also affect this. But the most significant, I argue, is class, particularly in terms of money, though poverty takes other forms, such as the poverty of love and of aspiration. The search for robust and flexible identities, more like rubber than glass, is crucial for children's long-term well-being and mental health. 
A balanced and broadly based curriculum cannot ensure this, but it can help. Children's long-term well-being depends on having a sense of agency, collective as well as individual, and control over their own learning, which is discouraged if teaching is too directive. We should not be surprised if a system where performance in tests is seen as all important leads to children becoming anxious and brittle, particularly in a culture which encourages an obsession with oneself and with appearances. There is not enough space here to explore in great detail how young children learn, but I will highlight some key points. Let us remember first that there are many routes into learning and that young children are not and should not be constrained by subject boundaries. And they benefit from being active, as Schiller recognized, not just in PE lessons or on the playground, but also by imagining, exploring, constructing, and discussing. Instruction is not how children, especially young ones, learn best. We do well to recall Lillian Katz's words, and I quote, if formal instruction is introduced too early, too intensely, and too abstractly, the children may indeed learn the instructed knowledge and skills, but they may do so at the expense of the disposition to use them. Children learn more deeply and securely by example and practice, watching, listening, being listened to, imitating and adapting, which implies that children should have a sense of agency and be self-directed and intrinsically motivated. Maslow's hierarchy indicates that biological needs, such as those for nourishment, sleep and a sense of safety, must be met before other needs. But we have, I believe, become obsessed with keeping children safe and fallen into the trap of overprotecting them. This is particularly true of adults from middle-class backgrounds. Children have to feel safe, but they also thrive on challenge and must be equipped to cope with what is unfamiliar and unexpected if they're not to become brittle and over-dependent on adults. All people have a range of abilities and talents though young children's may not yet be discovered or well-developed. Therefore, as Reed writes, and again I quote, even the youngest children should be exposed to a broad and ambitious curriculum in the hope of identifying one or more areas at which each child excels or is motivated to learn. Such a curriculum opens up new possibilities for what children may be, become interested in or benefit from in the future. All children need a range of formative experiences which enable them to become more than what Jerome Brummer memorably called little libraries. Margaret Donaldson emphasized the central role of contexts and relationships in how young children learn. Knowledge and skills, qualities and dispositions are learned more easily and more securely where these are introduced and applied in a context which each Abdul or Maria, each Leanne or David finds meaningful. The challenge for primary teachers is to create contexts and environments which ena enable young children from a variety of backgrounds to engage actively in their learning. Exciting, enjoyable and memorable moments transport children beyond their inevitably limited range of previous experiences. 
I love the metaphor of the horizon of possibilities, where new previously unseen possibilities open up the closer one approaches to the horizon. Let us seek to expand the horizons of all children, especially those who for whatever reason find it hard to see beyond what is within their immediate vision. Another favorite metaphor is to see everyone and every experience as contributing to the well of memory on which children will later draw. This idea of the well of memory illustrates the extent to which all experiences are combined into a mixture where no one knows exactly what will subsequently emerge. And it can help adults to recognize that their task is a long rather than a short-term one. Who knows the long-term impact on a young child of a theater group or a musician, a scientist or a storyteller, or indeed a teacher? A wide range of opportunities help children to extend the limits of their own experience and so enables them to gain new perspectives about other people and cultures. We all tend to live in bubbles mixing with those from similar backgrounds and with similar interests and we all need both mirrors and windows. Mirrors to see people like ourselves, windows to see people different from ourselves in both cases showing their achievements, their qualities and their flaws. So schools have a vital role in helping all children, whatever their background, to avoid cultural encapsulation and insularity where they only encounter views similar to their own. There is not enough time now to consider every subject area and discipline, but let us look briefly at what and how children learn through the humanities and the arts. Both are too often marginalized and trivialized in the current system. And they are what I call umbrella terms with porous boundaries. In other words, we shouldn't worry too much whether a particular activity falls within a particular subject boundary. And both can make essential contributions to spiritual, moral, social, and cultural development. Martha Nussbaum, Seeing the humanities as fundamental to how people learn to be and become democratic citizens argues that democracy requires citizens who can deal with complex and contested ideas and who manifest qualities and dispositions such as the ability and willingness to empathize with and to discuss and negotiate with those whom they disagree in a respectful way. Sadly, we have seen recently that such qualities are too often in short supply among many adults, especially powerful ones who should know better. At times of uncertainty, the ability to deal with conflicting ideas and know when to exercise one's judgment is vital. We must, as adults, especially teachers, find ways of enabling children of all ages at least to start to think about complex and difficult ideas if they are to cope confidently as active and informed citizens with challenges far greater than when I was a child, such as assessing the veracity of information and responding responsibly to the challenges which face the planet. In a 2017 article, I suggested that the humanities should be seen fluidly as including history, geography, religion, philosophy, literature, languages and culture more generally and that they fulfill a central role in how children construct and weave together their multiple identities 
into a coherent identity. As has been mentioned, we have set up an initiative called Humanities 2020, which focuses particularly on history, geography, religious education and citizenship. And the Humanities 2020 manifesto summarizes why the humanities matter, arguing that they enable children to first consider questions about the meaning and purpose of their lives. Second, explore their own identities, values and beliefs and concepts such as time, space and faith. Third, develop skills and habits associated with critical and creative thinking. Fourth, extend their cultural and imaginative horizons. Fifth, learn to empathize with people who are different as well as those who are similar, thereby celebrating diversity and challenging stereotypes. Sixth, learn about democracy, global citizenship and sustainability. And finally, strengthen a sense of care for themselves, each other and the planet in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Exploring such ideas tends to encourage children to become more humane and compassionate. Values must underpin how children are expected to act as they come to recognize that their own and other people's actions have moral and ethical implications. Learning is not just a matter of technical skill. The lockdown has emphasized the contribution of the arts as well as science to society and to everyone's well-being. Elliot Eisner suggests that the arts enable children to, and I will read these even though it's a bit dense. First, learn to make good judgments about qualitative relationships with judgment rather than rigid rules prevailing. Second, learn that problems can have more than one solution and questions more than one answer. Third, celebrate multiple perspectives since there are many ways to see and interpret the world. Fourth, learn that in complex forms of problem solving, purposes are seldom fixed, but they change with circumstance and opportunity requiring people to be able and willing to surrender to unanticipated possibilities as the work unfolds. Fifth, come to know that small differences can have large effects. Six, recognize that neither words nor numbers exhaust what we can know. Seven, learn to express what cannot easily be said in words so that when they are invited to disclose what a work of art helps them feel, they must reach into their poetic capacities to find the words to do so. And finally, have experiences that they can have from no other source and through such experience to discover the range and variety of what they are capable of feeling. And I'm sure you'll be relieved that that's the last of the lengthy PowerPoints. These summaries provide a cogent rationale for the humanities and the arts if education is to enable individuals and societies to cope confidently with the challenges ahead. Such challenges are both personal, such as those involved in constructing a coherent sense of identity in a confusing world, and societal, such as those related to the environment, sustainability and technological change, as well as the appeal of populist leaders, often with little regard for minorities and democracy itself. Another powerful argument for a balanced and broadly based curriculum relates to social justice. Though the most potent one 
it is perhaps the hardest one to make because it is somewhat counterintuitive. It may seem only common sense that children who have not mastered skills in literacy and numeracy should do so before encountering a broader curriculum. And those from less advantaged backgrounds are disproportionately represented in this group. But I am arguing otherwise, that such a curriculum is potentially enabling and empowering, especially for children from less privileged social backgrounds. Most children from disadvantaged backgrounds have had a more limited range of opportunities than those from more privileged ones. Many come to school with little experience of the reciprocal interactions and dialogue essential to learning. And if they fall behind their peers, especially with reading, can easily become disheartened and demotivated. And such a process easily becomes self-fulfilling. Terms such as cultural capital are too easily bandied around in arguing that children from disadvantaged backgrounds must acquire the cultural capital to succeed at school and beyond. Many children arrive at school with cultural capital which has been and still is valuable in other contexts, but less so in the predominantly middle-class culture of schools. Since children must be engaged with and by what they are learning, teachers must be prepared to build on their existing funds of knowledge, especially for those children, predominantly from working class and minority ethnic background, who find school learning unfamiliar and unmotivating. A broad range of activities and experiences can give such children the confidence both to draw on and apply what they already know and to try out new activities. Moreover, such a curriculum can enable children to reach beyond, even if only temporarily, their own often limited and possibly distressing lives. The argument that young children should concentrate on literacy and numeracy at the expense of a balanced and broadly based curriculum sets up a false dichotomy. Activities and experiences associated with the humanities, the arts and the sciences and physical activity provide enjoyable, engaging contexts to interest young children, to encourage them to represent, discuss, and think about these experiences, and so to want to learn and to apply these skills and to understand more about themselves and the world. We must avoid dichotomies between the arts and the humanities on the one hand, and either literacy and numeracy or science and mathematics on the other. All of these must be seen as complementing and supporting each other. Remember also that there is more to mathematics than numeracy and more to being literate than decoding text and writing a grammatically correct sentence. Most people who went to school before the 1990s never had literacy lessons, yet they became literate. Offering and providing a balanced and broadly based curriculum does not entail underplaying literacy and numeracy, but of enabling the skills involved to be learned and applied in a variety of meaningful contexts. But it does entail avoiding a relentless diet of skills supposed to be acquired somehow out of context. Experiencing more of the same uninteresting approach without making progress tends to lead to lower self-esteem, disaffection and disengagement. Teachers need to open up and enable children to explore different routes. Adults must look for multiple ways 
to unlock children's varied potentials and schools to offer a broad spacious range of experiences which help to up, open up opportunities from which many children, especially those from disadvantaged backgrounds, will otherwise be excluded. As Susan Engel uh, suggests, teachers should fill classrooms with the kinds of complexity that invites inquiry and provides children with interesting material, seductive details and desirable difficulty. But such experiences can happen through art, poetry, music, science or mathematics, and in many areas outside the classroom, from astronomy, basketball and cooking, through to yoga and zoology. I believe that adults tend to underestimate what young children can achieve. Education has come to be seen mainly in terms of predetermined outcomes, such as success in tests and ultimately employability, and where those who do not succeed academically are deemed, consciously or otherwise, to be of less value. Underlying the current approach is a belief or an assumption that young children cannot cope with complex ideas. They can, in the right context and with sensitive adult guidance, particularly as they approach adolescence. For instance, I recall vividly a whole class discussion with a group of nine-year-olds who, starting from the question of whether animals should be kept in zoos, were able to articulate and disagree on whether it was more important to be free or to be safe. As a society, we must think, we must rethink what we hope to achieve through schooling. Otherwise, we are likely to continue to adopt techniques and programs, which however well-intentioned may have unintended and adverse consequences. Schools and teachers must be prepared to alter how they work and think rather than always expecting children to do so and to conform. This entails starting from where the child is and working forwards, rather than from the expected levels which children are supposed to reach and trying to work backwards from those. While there is an, often an understandably fierce debate about the content of the formal curriculum, I suggest that we should focus more on questions of pedagogy the how rather than the what of learning and teaching in that order, since what is taught must always be judged in terms of what is learned. And the types of knowledge which children and adults require are far more subtle and complex than mere information and skills. Black Lives Matters has highlighted the extent of racism and the need for an inclusive curriculum which reflects cultural diversity. But inclusion involves much more than this. If we are to create a, an inclusive society where those who start at a disadvantage are enabled to succeed and everyone succeeds in a variety of ways, a more holistic approach is required. This entails not only challenging the dominance of academic and cognitive learning as all that really matters and the belief that one can sensibly separate physical from mental processes and emotion from cognition. With young children, social and emotional development underpins every other aspect. More radically, we should consider and celebrate diverse views of what constitutes success. A greater emphasis is needed on procedural knowledge, being able actually to do practical things and on personal and interpersonal knowledge the ability to understand oneself 
and to relate to other people. This calls for a holistic approach, similar to what in German is called Bildung, based on the belief that well-educated people have experience and knowledge of the humanities and the arts, as well as of science, technology and mathematics, so that they can challenge their own assumptions and the status quo, and that all aspects of learning and of life are connected and should be mutually supportive rather than at odds with each other, even if for practical purposes, one may have to consider some parts separately. I have suggested four main arguments for a balanced and broadly based primary curriculum. First, that the law states that schools must offer this, as it does, and that Ofsted expect this, at least from seven years old. Secondly, one based on how children create coherent, robust and flexible identities, enhancing their well-being and founded on a sense of agency. Third, one based on a conception of democratic citizenship in which children are increasingly enabled to deal with complex ideas right from the start. And finally, a social justice one that such a curriculum will open up opportunities from which many children especially those from disadvantaged backgrounds, will otherwise be excluded. But we must always remember that a curriculum is much more than a syllabus. Environments and pedagogy, the how of teaching, matter more than the written curriculum. Learning is a reciprocal process and therefore requires relationships of warmth and trust. I love the title of St. Ebsey's workshop or presentation, a curriculum as rich in humanity as in knowledge though of course we need both. We need to rehumanize our schools and make education far less like a production line where only those who succeed in a particular way are deemed to matter. Each child must be loved and cared for and challenged in a variety of ways, whatever their ability or background. This is the entitlement of all children and the responsibility of all teachers. I also wish to add that children must also care for others if they are to develop empathy, which matters especially for boys, particularly those who have not experienced and internalized models of masculinity where this is manifested for whatever reason. I would like to emphasize particularly the importance of play, of drama and of children's talk, all as processes which cross subject boundaries. There is a widespread recognition that very young children need to and learn through play. And play's sister, drama, enables one to adopt temporarily another identity and see how it feels to inhabit someone else's skin and their mind. But a suspicion of play remains once children are deemed ready for the serious business of learning. There is also suspicion of children's talk if this does not result in some visible outcome. A quiet classroom is still too often seen as evidence of children learning, though the value of children talking, being listened to and engaging in reciprocal dialogue and not just listening to adults is much more widely recognized and enabled by teachers than say 30 years ago. And let me finally put in a plea for indirect enjoyable routes into learning, such as stories and analogies, playfulness and humor. Learning is a serious matter but it should not be a solemn one. In conclusion, I started by referring to Christian Schiller's experience in the slums of Liverpool in the 1920s. Now, a century later, poverty and disadvantage may take somewhat different forms, 
but surely we must seek to combat disadvantage and discrimination in all its forms as we carry his vision forward. This requires rethinking the aims of education, what we hope to achieve, to try and ensure that children are and become rounded and responsible people. To achieve this, we must educate the whole child, not just a few aspects. This will entail no less a transformation of what and how children are taught than the one which Schiller envisaged and then saw come to at least partial fruition during his lifetime. A narrow, often dull curriculum impoverishes every child, but especially those whose horizons are limited. We need to make a balanced and broadly based primary curriculum a reality, not just for seven to 11 year olds and those from advantaged backgrounds, but also for younger children and all children, whatever their background. Such a change requires the potential and creativity of both children and their teachers to be unlocked from the current constraints. As Schiller recognized, such changes are difficult and do not happen overnight, but they are necessary if the children of today are to become the responsible, caring and humane citizens of tomorrow and to help create a society which is genuinely inclusive and compassionate. Thank you very much for listening.